Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Good evening! You're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 9, Episode 17. I'm your host, Otis Jiry, and tonight, dear friends, is a lucky time. It's Halloween night tonight. As such, we're going to be stepping outside the realm of comfort we've grown used to on the program. After all, it's a night to experience a little uncertainty, right? Not to worry, we still have stories for your enjoyment, but think of it more as a potluck or a goulash. I have alongside me here some artifacts, potentially cursed or otherwise, imbued with something mystical on this night. I have four in total, and we'll be taking a look at them in turn, relating the tale of woe associated with them. This, however, is the standard edition of tonight's program, in which we'll only be discussing the first two of these wondrous items. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, 
visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now, it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show is about to begin. <laughs> Now, let's turn to the first of our objects and see what I have to share with you. What's this we have here? Someone has sent us a delightful Halloween treat from Mr. Paul's Bakery. It's a bread of some kind, sort of like a fruitcake, but unlike a fruitcake. I don't think I can use to replace those missing bricks in my chimney. But what? I think I know what this is. It's a classic Irish tradition. Whatever you find inside will spell out your luck before next Halloween. Well, I'm sure we'll all be fine. Unless we get something that spells disaster. Well, how would you like a slice, dear listener? Without further ado, I present to you a fine barm brat. Nicholas Grime looked at the window at the neighbor's house, watching the twitching form dangling from a rope in the tree, the smiling figure holding the axe, and the blood-stained plastic sheet covering the front door. He sighed and looked at his own front yard, where a couple of jack-o'-lanterns sat and imagined that his own yard had more decorations in it. He loved Halloween, but between work, his son, and a host of other issues, he never had the time to put up a display he was proud of. Christmas was always an all-month affair, with everyone pitching in to make things look nice, but only he really cared about Halloween. So, unfortunately, he always waited until the last minute to put it together, and it never turned out how he would have wanted it. Not that he'd managed to spend as much time with Michael as he would have liked either. Work didn't understand he needed to get home sooner to spend more time with him, especially with everything that had been going on lately. Work didn't understand what was going on, didn't understand that Michael really needed him home now, more than ever. But in the end, when they told him to stay late, he did. They could use the extra money after all, he told himself. But it all felt like a different form of cowardice, just shoved away from where anyone else could see. But he decided this year would be a little different. No, it wasn't decorations, but it was an attempt to bring something new. Something that would get him back to being closer with Trisha and Michael. And since nobody else in the household likes spooky stuff as much as he did, maybe this would be something to... Honey, you got something in the oven? When did you learn to bake? Nick pulled himself away from the grisly display in the neighbor's front yard and walked into the kitchen where Trisha was leaning over the oven, holding the door open. What possessed you to make bread on Halloween? He closed the door and gave her a gentle kiss on the cheek. It's a tradition I'm trying to start, based on your grandmother's recipe, I might add. Oh, it is, is it? You went through that dusty old box of stuff? I thought you told me after I made that shepherd's pie to never touch it again. 
No more Irish dinners, but dessert would be fine. So what is it? He checked the timer to see how much time was left. It's the barmbrack. You're supposed to bake it with all these little things in the middle. as prizes. I hope you didn't make too many substitutions. Grandma was always picky about making sure everything was just right. Don't worry, I followed the recipe. Even the grapes. Nick didn't hate grapes, but he preferred not to eat them if possible. Seeing as it had both grapes and raisins, it was a bit of a turnoff, but he followed Grandma's instructions. All except the prizes. With the year they were having, especially, with Mike's sleep issues and staying indoors, they didn't need the traditional things that meant bad luck. Plus, he didn't really want to bake a stick in a loaf of bread. That would have just been horrible to bite into. Trick-or-treating went well. Michael, still young enough at ten to enjoy everything, but just old enough to start wondering if it was worth going anymore, came home with his pillowcase overflowing with candies of all kinds. Even Mr. Renfro down the street had been more generous than usual and gave big-sized bars to everyone. Nick had had a wonderful time walking with him, Michael wore a Captain Nitro costume, but Nick didn't have one at all. He had another casualty of the season, like everything else. He would love to have something really spectacular, really wow everything, but his technical skill was severely lacking, and he couldn't bear to just buy something from a store. Michael didn't have that kind of perfectionist attitude, so the store-bought Nitro costume was just fine. And at least somebody could feel like a hero. From the scant amount of the show he saw, Nitro delivered on his promise of courage and fortitude. They came to their door just in time to see Tricia send two more trick-or-treaters on the way. Entering into the safety of the warm house after being out in the cool, slightly rainy Indiana night gave a wonderfully cozy feeling despite all the ghoulish figures walking in the streets. Two cups of coffee and a mug of cocoa with marshmallows later they dig through the treat bag, talking about all the decorations they'd seen and who they'd recognized from school walking around the neighborhood. A quick glance at the clock, and Nick realized he'd have to hurry, what with tomorrow being school and all. Hang on, Michael. I made something special for tonight. He went into the kitchen, where the bread he'd made earlier was under a blanket. He returned to the family room, where everyone was sitting, and pulled the blanket away. Michael looked at slightly excited, but mostly puzzled. What is it, Dad? It's called Barmbrack. It's an old tradition I wanted to try and bring back. Your mom's grandmother used to have this as a child before she came over from Ireland. He picked up a knife and cut a piece. Basically, each piece has something special inside it. A little prize. Go ahead and see. Nick gave himself a slice and gave one to Trisha and Michael, then reclined on the couch as they ate. Trisha was the first. She bit into a piece, and there, sticking out of the bread in her hand, was a shiny little ball. She grabbed it and popped it open, and inside was a little slip of paper. And she read it. I'll see new sights before the end of the year. Oh, thank you, honey. And she gave him a kiss. Nick got his next. His was inside a piece he bit into, and he spit out the ball and read the fortune inside. You'll discover hidden talents that do great things. Cute. 
Tricia looked at the writing. These look handwritten. You didn't make these yourself, did you? No, I, I found a shop that did it online. It took a little doing, but there's a place that specialized in little Halloween knickknacks like this. What's yours say, Michael? Michael? Michael sat by the coffee table, holding the little bit of paper from the ball in his hand. He stared at it wide-eyed. Then he got up and went off to his room, leaving the paper behind. Tricia looked at it, gasped, and ran after him. Michael, Michael, it's okay, sweetie, it's just a piece of paper. It's just in good fun. Nick, confused, grabbed the little slip from the coffee table and looked it over. Your dreams will come true. Is he all right? Tricia sighed and climbed into the bed. I think he will be. He was just talking about the castle again. Nick bit his lip. He thought the castle was over and done with now. Michael had mentioned it in weeks. It was the most prevalent of his nightmares, and the one he'd talked most about in therapy. Nobody could really provide an explanation other than maybe he was concerned about progress in school, and that's how his mind rationalized it. But Michael was a straight-A student and enjoyed his classes and his teachers. His friends were all good kids, well, Brian was a bit of a troublemaker, but that was it. What did you say to him? Tricia rolled over and looked at the alarm clock on her side of the bed. I told him it was just a toy, and all it meant was that good things would come to him. Dreams coming true isn't meant to be a bad thing. True? I only want the best for him. You can tell him that yourself, you know. I think he'd love to hear it from you. He sighed. Sometimes I just wish I knew what to say. I want to make sure he knows I love him, but I just can't make it sound right. It doesn't have to be perfect, Nick. It just has to come from you. When I can find it, I'll let you know. Stop beating yourself up. Just, if he needs you, go see him, okay? I'll try. Well, good night and happy Halloween. She repeated it back to him, kissed him, and after he got his CPAP mask adjusted, they went to sleep. Normally, wearing the CPAP made Nick ignore almost every noise imaginable. But something made him wake up. He looked over at the clock, 1.30 a.m. He was about to roll over and go back to sleep when he heard a nagging feeling that something was wrong. It wasn't a noise or something he saw, it was just a feeling that he should go and check on Michael. If it was nothing, it was nothing. If it was something, it would be a chance to talk. He unhooked his machine and went down the hall to Michael's room, knocking lightly on the closed door. Michael? There was no response, other than the blankets rustling. He could see the desk lamp was on, from the light coming from underneath. Nick pushed the door open and saw Michael curled up under his blanket, wide awake looking at the ceiling. He was holding something in his hand. Hey, bud, what's up? Nick sat down on the edge of the bed and saw the object Michael had in his hand was the little crumpled paper from the barmbrack. You still upset about the note? Michael kept his eyes focused on the ceiling. What time is it, Dad? Nick looked at the Captain Nitro alarm clock next to the bed. One thirty-five. Why? The clock always says one thirty-six when he comes. 
in my dreams. When who comes? The thing at the window. I never want to look, but in my dreams I look anyway. I can't help it, it just happens. Just try something, Nick. Anything. Hey, hey. It's just nightmares, buddy. I know it's Halloween, but it's all for fun. We'll figure out these nightmares of yours, okay? Your mother and I love you very much, and we'll get to the bottom of it. Right, Captain Nitro? Nick enjoyed seeing the genuine smile on Michael's face, and the two hugged. All right, good night. You want me to leave the light on, or... He glanced to see that the alarm clock read 136, and would have thought nothing of it had he not glanced at the window and stopped talking. For a fleeting moment, something made of claws and spikes and staring white eyes, pupilless, at least seven or eight, was staring in through the window before vanishing into the night beyond. Tad? Nick looked down, realizing he'd been staring speechless, and saw Michael looking worried. You saw him, didn't you? I, I thought I saw something, but it was just... He's real now just like the fortune said it would be. Now Michael hugged him close, and Nick could hear the tears before he felt them wetting his shirt. It's, it'll be all right, Michael, really. But Nick didn't really know if it would be. He wanted to say it was all an illusion, a trick of the light, but he knew what he saw. There'd been something outside that window, something that knew he'd seen it. He knew because deep within those folds of nightmarish flesh, it had smiled at him. It couldn't be real, but it was. And right now, he realized all of his words of encouragement would mean nothing if he broke down into hysterics in front of his son. Despite everything in his mind screaming that of all times to panic, now was one of them. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Michael, can you look at me for a moment? Michael shook his head. It's okay, it's me. It's not... He stopped. He wanted to look at the monster out the window with good reason. Of course, some monster from a dream 
would say that and try to trick him into looking. You don't have to look, it's fine. But let's let's go to the other bedroom and Mommy and Daddy will come up with something. Just follow me. Michael shook his head again. We can't go into that bedroom. They're already there. They only let us go into the basement because they know I don't want to. Nick nodded, even though Michael couldn't see, but he just couldn't abandon Trisha. He'd have to see for himself. All right, stay with me. I want to make sure Mommy's okay, but I won't leave you. With Michael clinging to him, head buried in his shirt, Nick went over to the door, opening it, and peering out into the hall. As he did so, he noticed the light in Michael's room getting dimmer. The world changed from normal to a hazy purple tint, growing dimmer by the moment. Michael seemed to notice, even while hiding his face. When the lights go, they can come in. In the hallway, the nightlight that had led the way to the bathroom was doing the same, dimming to a strange, hollow, purplish tint, leaving the house almost too dim to see. Nick looked over at the master bedroom door, the door that he'd left open on the way to Michael's, now closed, with a sinister greenish-red light pouring around the edges. Wait, greenish-red, that color can't exist. The way to the basement lay on the way, but despite his son's protests, Nick had to know. He couldn't leave Trisha behind. He opened the master bedroom door. What remained of their bedroom now resembled some cave from some other world, the strange light flickering along its surface. What remained of their bed was a gelatinous pool where more liquid flowed from some source above, gurgling out of a tube that resembled a lamprey's mouth. What remained of Trisha was slowly being pulled into the pool, two skeletal figures pushing her down, glaring at Nick as their task was being interrupted. She reached for Nick with arms twisted and destroyed, her jaw hanging to the side as if the hinges were melting, her beautiful face bubbling and receding into a similar skeletal shape. Nick, please, they wanted to show me things I didn't want to see. Help me! Before he could move, the door slammed shut. Nick became aware of how dim the hallway was getting. He turned to see shadows beginning to extend out from all the doorways, but the basement door, forming into shapes that were more or less humanoid. Wasting no more time, he opened the basement door and pulled himself and Michael through it. The basement was no better lit than anywhere else, and the normally solid wood steps had been replaced with rickety boards, gaps in between where hands could easily reach through and grab an unsuspecting pair of feet. Even as the world and all its rules seemed to vanish around him, the sight of Tresha being pulled into the pool made his eyes water, and a lump formed in his throat. Michael, I'm sorry. I couldn't save Mommy. For the first time since all this began, Michael removed his face from Nick's pajama shirt and looked up. I know. But in my dreams, you're pulled into that pool, too. I'm glad you're here so I don't have to be alone for this part. Nick held his son's hand tightly and they descended. Nothing grabbed at their ankles, but below, he could hear the sound of something large, growling and moaning, sliding around on the concrete floor. But he held himself together as best he could. Michael couldn't know just how close he was to despair. It should have been him instead of her. 
She would have known how to keep things going. At the bottom, the basement did not resemble the finished structure he knew all too well. Instead, it opened into a yawning series of concrete brick hallways, all leading off into darkness. This is the labyrinth. We have a little bit to do to try and find the exit and get to the castle. But we only have a few minutes before the Guardian starts to chase us. Nick knelt down, held Michael's face in his hands and looked him right in the eyes. We're going to be fine, Michael. The alarms in his own head were saying otherwise, but he couldn't help but repeat that to him. You've been here before, right? Do you know the way through? Michael shook his head. I've gotten close, but I've never made it. The Guardian always gets me right before the end. That's usually the last thing I remember before I wake up. Nick smiled, though he didn't feel it inside. Do your best, champ. We'll get through this time. We've got to. He wasn't kidding himself, either, as the staircase they'd come down was now gone, replaced only with a torch-lit tunnel lighting the vaguest edges of something large, slimy, and hungry. Why it didn't attack them now, Nick didn't know, but as long as they were alive, he didn't care, either. Let's go, Michael. Run. Michael took a path, Nick following close behind. Occasionally there was a twist, a turn, a three-way intersection, staircases up and down, and he trusted his son to remember as much as he could from countless nights of terror, endlessly racing down these hallways of stone. With no watch, no clock, just the sounds of them twisting and turning through the maze, there was no way to tell how long they'd been in there, had it been just a few minutes or closer to a half hour. Whatever it was, it didn't matter once they heard a rumble and a horrible noise from behind them. It's coming, Dad. How could it fit through these hallways? The space was barely big enough for them to walk through single file, and whatever was behind them was far larger than that. But then, this was a dream coming true. Anything was possible. Nick was sure. More dead ends, more intersections... The only thing that changed was the ceiling opening up, revealing a dark, storm-addled sky, lightning and thunder crashing over a ruined blank landscape. Some distance away, just as Michael had said, was a castle, a looming monstrosity with towers supported by nothing in particular, mishmashed into something that more or less existed just to terrify. Another guttural roar followed by the sounds of brick being smashed as something raged behind them. Was it bursting through the walls, ripping them apart as it pulled itself along? There was no visible sign of it, but he knew it was getting closer, and if they didn't get through, it would catch them. It probably knew these hallways quite well, one way or another. Around the next corner, Michael stopped. Michael, what's wrong? This is as far as I got before. I don't know how to get past him. The maze opened up slightly into a boxy room where a thin man sat on the ground, cross-legged on an old tattered rug. The room was a dead end, but there were strange symbols on the walls where ways out would reasonably be. Who is this, Michael? I don't know, but all I know is he always lies. The man looked at Nick, dry, waterless eyes staring out from under a bowler hat. He's quite wrong about me. 
The roaring was getting louder. The castle itself seemed so close from here that this had to be the final step to leaving the maze. If what Michael said was true, and he had no reason to doubt him, then Nick just had to get the answer for them to find the right exit. Which exit here will lead to something that will kill us? The man didn't raise a hand or say anything. It was worse than any answer would have been. Which way will lead us to the castle? The man, in turn, pointed to each of the symbols on the wall, as well as straight up and down. That didn't make sense. By process of elimination, knowing these were all dead ends, what other way could there be? Michael? Michael, who was pushing on wall bricks like they would lead to a secret passage, turned to Nick. What is it, Dad? Nick spun to face the way they'd come in. The corridor looked different. There'd been a turn there before, but now it looked as if it went straight on into darkness. The roaring and bellowing were still coming from that direction. This way. We can't go that way. That's the way back to... I know, but trust me, I think it's the way to go. Come here. Nick picked up Michael and held him like he used to when he was still a little boy, arms clutched tight around his neck. The weight was heavier, but he didn't mind. Not right now, at least. Keep your eyes shut. I'm going to run. Don't look until I say so, all right? I don't know what's going to happen, but I don't want you to have to see. Michael nodded, and with that, Nick began to run. The corridor stayed narrow, but it remained a straight line. He noticed the horizon blurring, and a moment later, a road appeared, leading up to the castle, which now appeared above them. He looked back and saw the room with the thin man in it, but something large had appeared behind him, shrouded in the growing darkness. Thank you, sir. I've been looking forward to this for some time. Even Nick had to briefly close his eyes as he charged forward, hearing the screams from behind him. That turned out to be a mistake. The road ahead was a winding path, and he felt his right foot slip on the edge. He opened his eyes to see a yawning gulf of nothing below. Unfortunately, nothing could stop his momentum from falling, but at least he could twist himself so he wouldn't fall off completely. He turned his body so he landed on his back, and he felt a sharp pain in his shoulder and along his spine, but it faded as he lay there, breathing heavily, with Michael still clutching him tight. It's okay, Michael. You can open your eyes now. Michael did so, and for a brief moment he saw his son's eyes and wished he could take away all the fear from them, even if it was tempered with relief. That ended when Talons gripped his son on the shoulder, pulling him off and away. Michael screamed as the creature, from here looking all the world like a griffin, from which most of its flesh had been seared away, placed Michael on its back. Five skeletal hands emerged from its back to secure him, like a hellish seatbelt. It charged off toward the castle. Nick sat up. He watched in a daze as his son vanished up toward the gates and felt a hollow hole at the pit of his stomach. First Tricia, now Michael. He had nothing left. He couldn't stop any of this. He slumped back, feeling the terror and the fear bubble to the surface, shoving him to the ground in a fetal position. He felt his grip on sanity slipping. Something fluttered in the dust in front of him. It was a piece of paper that Michael held from the barm brack. 
All your dreams will come true. What was it Michael had said? I'm glad I don't have to be alone for this part. No, there was still a chance. Michael didn't have to be alone. He got up out of the dust and felt the strength returning to his legs. The walk to the castle didn't seem as long as it should have taken, but the gate was open and he went inside. Nothing about it made sense. Walls were ceilings, chains hanging from them, stretching tight across the room, with floors that wobbled and flowed. The surfaces all seemed to be made from faces on torment, but they sometimes repeated, or perhaps were shifted as needed. Gravity didn't seem to be an issue as Nick picked his way through hallways and more staircases, finally arriving at a large chamber. The griffin thing was there, bristling and stepping back at his approach. On the floor, Michael lay unmoving, surrounded by a green circle of light on the ground. And beyond that, a massive figure, at least nine feet tall, sat on a throne that seemed to consist of brain tissue, turned black, pulsing slightly. He stood, neon red eyes staring from a blackened skull, the body itself that of a bodybuilder covered in used motor oil. It held a spear. Nick looked at it and knew somehow that Michael's long-running night terrors were the result of this monstrosity. Something primal emanated from it. Primal, normal, and beyond comprehension. What do you want with him? Why my son? Why now? The king, or whatever it was, just stared at him briefly before going over to the circle and conducting whatever business it was planning. Nick fell to his knees, feeling his recently renewed strength leave him. Whatever it was, it had no desire to explain anything to him. He was a mere animal, an insect, something to disregard, because he was not important to it. He'd never felt more insignificant in his life. It leaned in close to Michael's motionless form on the ground and began drawing symbols in his head. Nick could do nothing in the face of something so powerful. What could he do? He was just a man against something that had all the power in this place at his disposal. For a moment, as it continued to draw symbols on his son, he had a vision of the thing replaced with people at his office, asking him once more to stay a few hours to finish some paperwork. His family would be fine without him, certainly. He felt a surge. No, not today. Nothing would keep him from his son. He didn't quite know what happened next. He just felt threads in the air, a feeling that if this were a place of dreams, that he could do something himself. He just knew in the next moment he charged the king of this place, knocking him over. He felt searing pain as the creature tore at his arms, trying to remove his grip as he began to pull at its throat. But in his rage, he didn't care. Under his fingers, Nick could feel the throat pulling away, tenon and slime coming free in his hand. He didn't understand where the strength came from or the speed, but he continued to rake to pull at its jawbone, pulling it free in one massive stroke. He punched straight into its chest and felt its diseased heart. Now those red eyes, once filled with disdain, filled with fear. Good. Let it know what he felt tonight, and what Michael had felt for who knows how long. He saw his fists come down again and again, 
sending pieces of it flying everywhere, screams of rage bellowing from his own throat until nothing remained beneath him but blackened scraps that bubbled and hissed. He got off the corpse and returned to Michael, scooping him up in his arms. The runes and shapes faded and the boy's eyes opened. He looked at Nick. Captain Nitro? No. Michael, it's me. Michael blinked. He hugged his father again, no longer in fear but in relief. But Michael's words got Nick thinking. Maybe, just maybe, there was something of Captain Nitro in him now. But there was something not right. Whatever was happening, the world didn't vanish, didn't fade, didn't put them back in their house. With everything safe and sound, they were still here. What was it, then? Was this world of dreams real? Was this what existed now? Nick looked around. The griffin was gone, having flown away during the fight. He then looked down at his arms and realized how deep the wounds were and wondered how he was still standing. But he'd have to be strong. Here, there was only Michael now. Or maybe Trisha was out there, somewhere. If she was, he'd find her. He had nothing left to do but try. He still held Michael's slip of paper from the Brambrack, and even though he didn't remember putting it there, he could feel his own in his pajama pocket. He wondered who made those slips, but only briefly, because he had work to do. Still carrying Michael, he stumbled forward, not knowing where he was going, but heading forward into this world nevertheless. And for all his doubts, all his worries, all his concerns, he did know one thing. It was certainly the most memorable Halloween night he'd ever had. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I hope you enjoyed a fine Barmbrack, submitted by Seth Paul, as performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed this tale and would like to read more from Mr. Paul, you can help support him by visiting simplyscarypodcast.com slash paul. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash P-A-U-L. He has a few books of a more comedy bent, if that's more to your liking, but please do not disturb him when he's sleeping. His dreams are already disturbed enough. I truly wonder what happened to those two. I wonder if they ever found her. And all three of them are off wandering a blistered nightmare for the rest of their lives or if they found a cozy spot to settle down. I hear there's a castle that just came on the market, but the real estate around there is still wide open for building. And cheap, too. But with that behind us, let's move on to our second selection of the evening. Oh, look here. A box with a note on it. Dear Otis, I hope you enjoy this present. I found these recently outside of a crime scene with no owner attached. I was hoping the little book enclosed could share some light on where they came from. Your friend, Richard Morgan. Well, Richard, thank you. 
Let's see what's... Oh my, what an interesting pair of shoes. I'm not one for sneakers myself, but ooh, those look a little sharp. I better be careful. You never know where something's been, especially at a crime scene. But then this book seems to suggest some people will just be careless with anything, for good or ill. Oh, there's something else in the note. This was also in the book at the end. Might be a catchy introduction. Oh, well, without further ado, I present to you... Hmm. The Devil Wears Nike. When there was a chill in here and there were more jack-o'-lanterns and plain pumpkins on every doorstep, I got called out to investigate a fresh crime scene. Somebody thought it would be real cute to firebomb a Catholic church. Now, this wasn't one of those boxy, smaller, modern churches that you could level with a few Molotovs. No, sir. This was one of those ancient, cathedral-grade churches with high ceilings and priceless paintings of angels with titties and peepees flying around. I suppose it's shocking enough that someone chose to target a piece of history like that, but even more shocking was that the way that the blaze had gotten so intense. Every fire truck we had at hand was there, and the fire just wouldn't quit. All that water and all those brave firefighters got for their efforts was a lot of steam. It was days before the scene was cool enough to walk on. There was molten rock. The heat was so intense that some of the masonry melted, there hadn't been any explosions, just the fire. There were a few hundred people inside when the deed was done. It was some kind of late-night worship thing, and the arsonist chose that it wouldn't be enough to just destroy the building. There had to be some lives lost as well. Forensics could only turn up one small bone fragment. The rest of the bodies had basically been cremated on site. Like those bodies... There wasn't much of a church left. Had any more damage been done, there might not have been any evidence that a giant church had even been there. So they were desperate to get some kind of lead on what was used, let alone what kind of person would do such a thing. That's why they got me out there to dig around. I could feel the heat on the ground through my shoes. I didn't know what they expected me to find just digging around in all the ashes. Well, I found the first domino in a sequence of many. It was a footprint. There were lots of those with all the law enforcement and rubberneckers about, but this footprint kind of stood out. It was made in the mud. If the crime scene hadn't been a church, I might not have paid it so much mind. The sole of the shoe that had left the imprint was of a pentagram, and not just any five-pointed star... This was the kind shaped like the head of a goat with a strange symbol at the end of each point. Not exactly the kind of shoe you'd seen on the shelf at Foot Locker. It was either a very limited run or it was custom made. The next domino was the slender brownish purple leaf that was lying in the footprint. That leaf would have meant nothing to anyone else but me. Because you see, well, it was... I'd been banging the chief of police's wife for months. She and her husband, and her two kids, 
They all lived on this really ritzy lakefront property. There was one park by the lake that was like the Garden of Eden. The trees and flowers were so thick that they felt like walls that kept her and me a secret, sheltered us. Most rich white people are afraid to be out at night, no matter where they live. So once the sun went down, we had that park to ourselves. Well, we could pretty much do whatever we wanted. There was one sort of flowering shrub in that park that overpowered everything. The smell stayed in your clothes and your hair. Very suddenly, that police chief transferred out and put his house up on the market. Either it happened suddenly, or she just decided not to tell me about it, which was merciful when I think about it. But just like that, she was gone. Hurt more than I thought it would. Closest thing to love I ever felt, even though that's not what it was. And that scent, that shrub, that was all I had to remember her by. I got all sentimental and tried to find that shrub to keep it home. There wasn't a single nursery or greenhouse or nothing that carried it or could get it in. I kept my eyes and nose open for that shrub when I was out on the job. I swear it grew nowhere else in town except that park on the lakeshore. There was one of the leaves, lying there in the only clue I'd had, found all day. I couldn't turn a blind eye to it. After a quick nip from the flask, I gathered myself to go pay a visit to the lakeshore. It had been a few months since I'd been there. I don't know if the vodka buffered me from the nostalgia or made it worse, but as soon as I smelled those flowering shrubs, I pretty much forgot I was there on official business. It was like I was in a trance as I walked down the path paved with concrete that had been fancied up to look like cobblestone. There could have been a mountain of evidence in front of me, a dead body or something, and I wouldn't have seen it. I missed her. I wondered if she missed me. Stuck with a man with plenty of money but no brains. Not even enough to know that his own wife was stepping out on him. Speaking of steps, there was the tread of that infernal sneaker imprinted on the brick path in dry mud. Pentagram, goat's head and all. The trail led to... What? The Shrine of the Virgin Mary? It was just about the biggest and most extravagant shrine to the girl I'd ever seen. Says something about the money that's in the property on that end of town. Either this culprit was really burning the candle from both ends, or... Hmm. The shrine was surrounded by extremely thick greenery and shrubs. Yes, those shrubs. I took a deep breath like I was about to jump into a pool on the deep end and got down on all fours and pushed my way into the foliage that was starting to turn colors. I found that the ground at the base of the shrine had been disturbed recently. Somebody had no clue how to cover their tracks. It didn't take much to find the cavity in the earth where the ground ended, and the shrine began. It was a simple, waterproof duffel bag wedged in there. It could have been my imagination, but I swear that bag felt a little warm. I looked it over. Something about it told me that it hadn't been sitting long. I threw my eyes around to make sure I was alone, and I unzipped it. The shoes were the very first thing I saw. I kind of felt them and saw them both. If the footprint was blatantly evil-looking, the shoes were something else entirely. They were black with red accents. Oh, and never mind the shiny metal pentagram, 
hanging from one of the shoelaces. I turned it over, and what did I see but the very soul that had been left with the footprint at the scene of the crime. I was thrilled to have made the discovery on my first hunch, but I was also disappointed that it had been so easy. So, sue me, I like a little bit of a challenge. This character just fell into my paws without a fight. But then again, who else would have recognized the foliage from that shrub? Leave it to a sinner to incriminate the devil. I thoughtlessly started to trace the diabolical patterns on the bottom of the shoe. I burned my finger and I dropped the shoe. I couldn't believe it to the point that I had to do it again. That time I tried a finger. Didn't think I'd use much. Ah, happened again. I felt inside the bag for anything that was warm, anything that could give me a rational explanation for what I was experiencing. And nope, the shoe was hot. So I put my hand inside the shoe. Nothing. That's when I did one of the dumbest things I think I ever did. I took off my shoes and proceeded to put the evidence on my own feet. I'd thought they might be a size too small, but when I got them on, they fit great. Maybe they're stretched or something. The shoes had a few metal accents, beside the dominant pentagram that proudly hung in the middle of the shoe. I thought about putting on some latex gloves to inspect further, but I was already wearing both of the infernal things on my feet. My DNA was going to be in there no matter how I went about it. I started running my fingers along every part of the shoes like a blind man trying to read every little bit of information, and I found nothing. Not until I touched one of the metal pentagrams. The shine looked genuine, like they could have been a low-carat gold. I lifted it up to see how the light bounced off of it, but the little thing was so sharp that it nicked me. Oh, it already barely touched it. How razor sharp was that thing? The cut spilled a few warm beads onto the metal. I didn't want my DNA on it like that. I thought my eyes must be playing tricks on me, because it looked like the blood was soaked into the metal. I tilted my foot a bit, looking for the shine of my blood creeping under the metal symbol. But no, the shoe was dry. The pentagram drank my blood. I got a bad feeling about the whole thing, and I went to untie the shoelaces. The knot wouldn't budge. I tried the little kid method and got a grip on the shoe with both hands and pulled. The shoe's hold on my foot was sure. Sam went for the other shoe. I didn't like that. I didn't like that at all. The devil had a death grip on my feet or something. But then I noticed something. The shoe that drank my blood, the metal of the pentagram, had turned a coppery red color, like my blood had mixed in with the metal. The other one still had that light gold color, and that foot started to get warm. I got the message all too quick. Uh-uh. No way. Uh-uh, I said. I didn't like that even got warmer. Okay, okay, Jesus. I touched the other pentagram and my skin cut all too easy like I was an old man. The metal drank deep and turned that copper color and then my foot stopped burning. Okay, you got what you want. Now what? Let me go now? I didn't stop to think if it would be a good or a bad idea to directly address a pair of evil shoes. Because they listened. 
or something was listening. I watched as my shadow underneath me got darker. Two long shadows, like tentacles, writhed out from underneath me, and then snaked across the ground and up and around the shrine to the Virgin Mary. Now, this particular representation of Mary looked like she could have been the daughter of Marilyn Monroe. The hair was blonde, and the rags looked expensive, and I swear she was wearing some kind of lipstick. They'd stuck to tradition in one detail. Her eyes were closed. Well, they opened. They were like two embers. The expensive, weatherproof paint began to peel away, and the gray stone underneath was laid bare. The statue of Mary grinned at me. She had sharp teeth. She opened her mouth like she was going to say something, but she never did. Her mouth kept opening, kept widening. Her chin sank further and further past her breasts, down past her waist, down to her feet. Next thing I knew, that statue's mouth had become so wide, it was as wide and tall as me, and it was filled with a shivering crimson light. A doorway. The frickin' thing had stretched into a doorway, or uh, a portal of some kind. Sounds, awful sounds, drifted out of it. Cries, screams, wailing, misery, human misery. Somewhere in the mix was laughter and howling. I thought it was thunder at first, but thunder don't laugh. My mind was racing. I ran my hands along the aperture of the stretched-out mouth of the Virgin Mary that formed that twisted portal. It was a little too warm to rest my hand on. It was solid. A wave of heat hit me in the face, and I had to step back, tears rushing up to rescue my seared eyes. I snapped back to the moment when I heard crazy laughter that was coming closer. I got my revolver out, cocked the hammer, and backed up good and far from our lady's gaping mouth. It was a kid, maybe early twenties. He was sweating buckets. His face was blackened with soot and ash. Madness shone in his eyes and his yellow teeth. He was wearing something that looked an awful lot like the robe, or whatever was in the bag I found was also wearing those sneakers. Their metal pentagrams were glowing like molten rock. His whole shape was twitching with the jerky movements of a squirrel. Marcus, he said in a voice that oozed instability, is that you? I wasn't sure if I should answer or not. We've been waiting for you and the new recruit for a long time, Marcus. We're getting tired of waiting. We might have to haze you along with him. Acting on instinct, I reached into the duffel bag and pulled out the robe and tucked it under my arm. Oh, sorry to keep you waiting, I said, stepping forward. Kid jumped like a crackhead hearing a police siren. It's okay. Marcus is indisposed at the moment. I'm on my own for this round. He looked me up and down, did some kind of mental calculation, and apparently arrived at an answer that made sense to him. Well, then... Ready to burn a church with the very fires of hell, he said, salivating. Oh, is that what's on the itinerary? Marcus should have told you. Orientation was cut short. He said you'd guide me the rest of the way. Marcus uh, usually isn't that sloppy. How do I know you're telling me the truth? I got the portal open, didn't I? Okay, fine. Make sure you have all your hell pellets. 
He must have read the confusion on my face because he patted the pocket of his robe. I took that as my cue to put on the thing I was carrying. Like the shoes, it didn't seem like it should fit, but it did as if by magic. I reached into my pockets and found some things that felt like heavy metal balls, like musket shot or ball bearings. I pulled out what I expected to see, something that looked like a round lump of lead. It smoked where it made contact with my skin. My new friend nodded and said, Okay, let's go. And he went into Mary's mouth, practically skipping along the way, whistling. I took a deep breath and followed. If I'd been swallowed alive by a gigantic snake with a thorny throat, that's the closest thing I could compare walking down that corridor. Blood red light lit the far end, which seemed to be an eternity away. But we reached the end, and I found myself inside a cavern of porous rock where everything was jagged and spiky and rough. It was a group of more kids in robes. They each had a set of these evil sneakers poking out from under their clothes. The volcanic rock, or whatever it was, had formed a natural platform from which one of them stood and prepared to hold a meeting. Every last one of them were kids, but they were also kids that had seen 40 miles of bad road. They were all missing teeth and had lines on their faces, that had no place in the face of anyone under 50. The one on stage had eyes that never stopped looking like he was shocked, and he surveyed the room like a bug-eyed fish. "'Where's Marcus?' he said. He wasn't able to make it, but he sent in the latest recruit, said my new associate, as he gestured to me. The shift in the room was solid enough to be a billy club. They all looked at me, this hawking aged specimen that was solely out of place. Don't you think you're getting started a little late in life? One of them said. Even in the red-tinted light of that chamber, I could tell that the face of the kid on the platform had turned colors. You dare mock the choice of Marcus, my second in command? Before the kid could say he was sorry and that he'd never do it again, the others seized him and took his robe and his shoes must have known what that meant because he howled like a monkey. He was then dragged to one of the exits of the cavern, where there was more light, hinting at an open area. "'You are excommunicated,' the kid in the platform said. Just as soon as the orange light fell on him from that opening, all manner of claws and tentacles were on him, and the meat was stripped from his bones before the ushers had let go of him. It was a wonder they weren't injured along with him. I must have been transfixed because I was startled when the kid on stage was suddenly next to me, taking me by the elbow. Welcome to your new family, child, he said. Dang, that kid looked high. I'm guessing the robes and the shoes are more than just uniforms, eh? Indeed, child, indeed. The robes cause the minions of darkness to turn a blind eye. And the shoes, those are new. Yeah, I haven't seen anything like them until recent. Brand new shoes, child, brand new shoes. They're the first of their kind. They were invented by one of our top officers who's infiltrated the popular music scene. Popular musician is a disciple of the devil, huh? Most of them claim to be, but only a handful are the real thing. But oh, yes, he performed a foul new ritual of his own design 
and transmuted the body of a glutton into those wonderful shoes. They can open the gates of hell, and they can open the gates out of hell. How do you know it was the body of a glutton? There were 666 pairs of shoes made from just one body. Ah, I see. So this night, child, this night, you prove your worthiness of wearing your shoes. With the hell pellets you have in your pocket, you're going to start a fire at a church that cannot be put out. I took out one of those balls and held it up. You mean one of these? The kid nodded vigorously. I looked for a target to test it on. There was this ugly cube of some kind, and I thought it was as good of a mark as any. But when I drew my arm back for the toss, the little leader guy nearly messed himself. Don't do that. You must not defile the dark altar. The what? The dark altar. It's the means by which hell has granted us safe passage through the realm. The robes and the shoes are an extension of its power. Hey. So, if the altar is defiled, all hell turns on you? Precisely. That sounds like a living nightmare. Absolutely. I opened my robe and immediately started peeing on the altar. And I hocked up a big grayish-green loogie and spat on it, you know, just for good measure. Monstrous, bestial roars and squeals filled the cavern... I zipped up my fly and began running back the way I came. The conduit, or whatever, that took me down into hell was still open. I heard the sound of my brethren getting butchered behind me. I was one step ahead of them, and I made it out. I erupted out of the portal like a cannonball, and I nearly plowed over a kid. It appeared that the original user of the shoes and the other accoutrements that went with them had decided to come back for his gear. He was mostly what I'd expected, a kid of about fourteen or fifteen. Like the others, he looked much older. His mouth dropped open when he saw me, exposing all three of his teeth. I didn't waste any time. I grabbed him by the hair. Nice to meet you. I'm from hell, I said as I grabbed him by his long, scraggly hair. No, you're not. I'm from hell, he protested. I didn't expect this. He just might have been dumb enough to give me some useful information. No, I'm the one wearing the devil's shoes. They're my devil's shoes. You stole them from me. I'm the real disciple of the devil. Oh, yeah? Prove it. I threw him down on the ground. His lower jaw protruded and his sparse teeth looked like angry little fingernails. I used fire from hell to burn down a church... Then I used the shoes to escape into hell itself. And that's the confession I've been waiting for. I got enough now to put you away in a place where you'll wish you had a portal to hell. I said just a little too loud. He got that oh crap look on his face. Oh yeah? Well I know all about you and the chief of police's wife. I don't know what you're talking about. I bluffed. The devil does. He's the one that set you up for temptation. So if you take me down, I'm taking you down. Neener, neener, neener. I dug my fingernails deep in his scalp and held him up like a prized trout. I looked him up and down and I took a deep breath. All right. I suppose that not every situation calls for following the exact letter of the law. 
There's got to be room for alternate methods of resolution. His painful scowl melted into something relaxing and smug. I dragged him over to his robe, and I reached into one of the pockets, and I pulled out one of the cubes. It smoked gently where it made contact with my skin. That's some bullion you got there, I said. He didn't see the humor in the statement. So here's how it's going to be. You're going to go your way, and I'm going to go mine, after I get rid of all the evidence. I dropped the cube onto the grass, where it immediately turned into a puddle of churning magma that began burrowing into the ground and forming a pool. Hey, uh, those shoes won't burn. I know, I said. I yanked him up into the air, and I caught him by the ankles. With that swift movement, I had him hanging upside down. I lowered him down into the hellfire head first. Once his head was burned, his body stopped twisting and squirming, and destroying the rest of the evidence was much easier. I dropped the last of his toes in the liquid fire, and I took a moment to regard the shoes that allowed a living man to walk through hell. There was no point in adding them to the fire. Nothing could burn them. Same could be said for the other stuff. In a few months' time, I was known as the detective that was always one step ahead of the city scum. Some of them called me the Phantom, since no matter where they tried to go, I was there waiting for them. No matter what shortcuts they knew or how fast their getaway was, I was there. How? Simple. I had the fastest shortcut of all. All I had to do was wear those infernal shoes inside of my Wellingtons, so as to hide the treads, and just like that, I had the best bus pass in town. I hope you enjoyed The Devil Wears Nike, sent to us by Richard Morgan, as performed by yours truly. If you'd love to read more from him, you can help support him by visiting simplyscarypodcast.com slash Hesselman. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash H-E-S-S-E-L-M-A-N. No, that's not a typo. Sometimes Mr. Morgan writes as Wentz Hesselman. So if you see either of them online or wish to avail yourself of his works, don't be afraid to look up either. But if you run into Wentz, don't call him Richard and vice versa. They can be very disturbed if they're mistaken for the other. Well, good to know the tools of the devil can be used against him, right? But if those shoes ended up here, what happened to our good friend and his vigilante justice? Maybe it's best if we just set these aside. So, as my time with you draws to a close, I'll be calling it an evening. As a reminder, if you have decided to give any of these talented authors' stories a read, please consider leaving them a quality review and a kind word, or a thoughtful public comment and an upvote. And be sure to let them know you heard about them on this program, and that me, Otis Jiry, sent you. It means more to me than you can imagine, and I'm sure Seth Paul, Richard Morgan, N.M. Brown, and Kyle Harrison would much appreciate it. Thanks again for your support of this show and of tonight's featured authors. Now, before I go, I'd also like to take a moment to thank you personally for joining me for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. 
If you've enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs or become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. And if you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Gyrie channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Just search for Otis Chiry. I hope you have a marvelous Halloween, and try not to wake up too many dead. Until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep, if you can. <laughs>
and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs>